VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Back in the dorm, we couldn't anticipate this. But you think about it. They were out of the dorm within four months, and they were in Silicon Valley. He was surrounded by some of the best minds in Silicon Valley. Mm. He had this great advice, and everything went great for him. Uh, He was able to make that pivot from a college network to something that served everyone in the world. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. We have a throwback edition for you this week. So, as you are no doubt well aware, this has been an absolutely monster week for big tech. So, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Facebook, all reported just gigantic profits, generally blowing away what were already ratcheted up expectations from Wall Street. We're talking about many, many tens of billions of dollars between them. Um, And it really just highlighted this growing concentration of power amongst the big guys, as well as just this broader shift of more and more money flowing to the internet, more and more time being spent online. And so that is one bit of context. The other thing you may have noticed, uh, which I touched on in the paper last week, is that Mark Zuckerberg has kind of broken cover about what his next big plan is. And that is to make Facebook a metaverse company and his idea is that in five to ten years facebook will not be known so much as a social media company but a metaverse company now the metaverse for those of you who don't know is kind of this concept of really the melding of kind of the physical world and the digital world in a new type of virtual space and it's a place where you could kind of theoretically work make money make art have relationships kind of theoretically spend most of your time or much of your time in the metaverse in this kind of brave new world that's obviously a pretty far out idea that term comes from snow crash which came out in 1992 great science fiction novel but zuckerberg really appears very focused on this Um, he's telling anybody who will listen that that is the direction that facebook is going and obviously oculus their you know the vr headset would play a very big role in that i would guess you get the idea so that is happening you have that over there you have facebook which recently became a trillion dollar company just past the trillion dollar market cap um you have the soaring profits and this whole shift to this kind of brave new world i thought it was just worth surfacing an interview that i did last year with stephen levy who wrote a book called facebook the inside story which was based on years of reporting. Uh, Levy's been around for decades in Silicon Valley. He's super well-connected. 
And the book was based on a bunch of interviews with Zuckerberg himself, as well as a bunch of other insiders. And it really gives a great sense, better than pretty much anything else I've read on Facebook. And there's obviously been a lot written about this company of the company, who Zuckerberg is, what makes him tick, kind of his direction of travel, his motivations, etc. And I just think in the context of everything I just laid out, the metaverse, it becoming a trillion dollar company, etc. It's worth bringing this to the surface because I think, you know, whether we like it or not, Zuckerberg is determined that this company will be kind of at the heart of life as we know it, or life as he envisions it for years, maybe even decades to come. So that is what you're about to hear now. It is my interview, which we published in March 2020 with Stephen Levy right before, or kind of right as the pandemic was really getting going, um, which is also a bit of a weird window to the past. But anyhow, I know you're going to enjoy this one. So here it is. Enjoy. I could pinpoint exactly when I wanted to do this book. It was August 27th. 2015. And that's the day that Mark Zuckerberg posted something on Facebook that wound up in my newsfeed and probably the newsfeed of a million other people saying that a billion people had been on Facebook the day before. Crossing the billion person threshold. Yeah, yeah, but on the same day. Right. So like the World Cup, right? You get like over a billion people. But that's like passive viewers. Yeah, People just sit there. This is an interactive network where presumably the utterance of one person on that network can reach, in theory, everyone on the network. It's really a whole nexus of interlocking individual networks and one of those complicated maps like you see of the internet. And this was an amazing achievement to get such a big, significant portion of the world on the same network on the same day. What's more, this wasn't a spike it was a baseline. It was just yeah, going to get yeah. bigger and bigger and bigger. So I figured, this hasn't happened before. I want to write about this. I want to write about how this happened, who did it, how they did it, what uh, went right, and what could go wrong. Uh, 2015. 2015. Yeah. And I had been covering Facebook for a long time, knew the people, and spent the next few months trying to get them to give me access for the book I wanted to write. And it took a while, but so I wasn't invited in. I sort of invited myself in. And literally a year from that day where I saw that post, I was off to go to Nigeria with Mark Zuckerberg to begin my research. It was a very different time. Oh, yeah. So I will confess when I started reading the book, it's almost like a PR tour of uh, Nigeria. I kind of like internally, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. (laughs) (laughs) but I had to take myself back to that time because I actually I moved here December 2016 so right after the election of Trump it was around that time that people were still talking about Zuckerberg was like oh he's maybe he's going to run for president Facebook was still seen as this thing that it had problems but most people hadn't paid attention to those problems and it was still seen as just phenomenon more than anything else And it's just hard to kind of place yourself back in that time because obviously things have just transformed wildly. Yeah, that's why I started that way. So you can get a look at peak Facebook and then woof, tables whisked away and, you know, all the dishes clattered to the ground. 
Yeah, exactly. So, and so, how much time did you end up spending with Zuckerberg over the kind of the course of this? I research? talked to him. I, I counted it. Actually, I, I put in the role, the book seven times, and I like really counted more carefully. It was like I talked to him nine times during the book. As it went on, our conversations got more and more frank. They got more and more frank. Yeah, that's surprising. Well, what happens when you do a book like this? is you're kind of like an anthropologist yeah. going into some weird culture somewhere. First, you go in there, and you don't know the language, and you don't know what the real inside culture is, and so you stumble around a little. And as you talk more, you learn the abbreviations they use. You learn about the little things that all the folks have in common. For instance, in the big building of headquarters of Facebook, it's a quarter mile long, and there's, you know, there's no kind of orderly way yeah. things are arranged. But there are two corridors that you can kind of traverse the building for, and they're sort of nicknamed like 101 and 280, just like the way you go down right. from San Francisco to the Silicon Valley, two big highways. And I learned about the projects that were started and abandoned and, and a lot of other things. And So as you master that company and the culture – and then begin to talk to people in that language, they're more frank with you. So as I learned Facebook better, my conversations with Zuckerberg became richer. So eventually he's talking to me, you know, uh, understanding that I, I know this company as well as an employee. He can't skate over things, or, and I'm able to ask him questions much more directly than you normally would. Could you talk about that first time you met him? Because you recount it in the book, and it's really fascinating and obviously he's come a long way since then but still he's still Zuckerberg right yeah uh, so I first met Mark Zuckerberg in March 2006 Facebook itself was invented you know just two years before that and so he was what 21 or something maybe yeah he was 21 at that time I was working for Newsweek magazine and we were working on a story about something called web 2.0 where this version of the web was going to be people-oriented. Right. People were putting up content, and that was the center of a lot of these apps like MySpace and YouTube and Flickr. And I had heard about Facebook as a really successful network of college students right? and wanted to meet the young CEO of this company. figured maybe I'd get a quote from him. And I arranged to meet him at this tech conference. It was one of these sunny locations, yep. you know, where you go in a resort hotel. We had arranged to meet at lunch. Everyone retreated to this big field with these round tables. So I asked them some softball questions at first, like, you know, how many colleges and yeah. how many people, how many employees? And he didn't say anything. He just stared at me. Blank. Blank. You know, with eyes wide open. And I'm thinking, did I offend him? Is he going through an episode? What's happening here? <laughs> and this, time, this silence, I, it felt like a very long time. It wasn't a great interview. What I found interesting in retrospect is later on, as I was researching this book, I came across pages from a notebook hmm. that he had kept during that period. And at the time, he was re designing Facebook to be a totally different kind of product. He was moving beyond college students into connecting everyone in the world. Right. And he was changing the design of Facebook to go from a place where 
people put up their profile information and almost like a physical book. You turn a page and look at a yeah, profile. Yeah, yeah. So you go you sort of skip from profile to profile to something where there would be a stream of information. That information would be pushed to you. Yeah. You know, like a, like a newspaper arriving at your door. Algorithmically edited. But also a different experience when that information is delivered to you yeah. that way. And he also had, in that notebook, was outlining his vision for Facebook as what he called an information engine, a database, like a great government database, he said, yeah, yeah. where it would have information on everyone in the world, speculating about this product called Dark Profiles. It would uh, contain a profiles of people who had not signed up on Facebook. Collated from information out there on the web. Yeah, or your friends yeah. would put it up. Yeah. Uh, now, that part didn't happen, but I did find out there was a dark profile presence of, of people on Facebook that some of the employees told me about. Yeah. It was a great contrast to me to say, this guy staring at me, I figured, you know, I'm talking to a severe stroke victim, to someone <laughs> who is actually designing a product that would be an unprecedented success in bringing in you know, like a huge population uh, to use it. If it were a country, it'd be the biggest country in the world. How did you get that notebook? In other words, did he give it to you? or? or well, he couldn't you... give it to me, as it turns out, because he destroyed these notebooks. Right. Yeah, so I had, I had learned about the notebook. You know, a couple people had read that you know, he had kept a notebook. And, right. you know, and they also wrote that he destroyed the notebook. But they also, a couple places wrote and saying, sometimes he would copy a few pages of the notebook and give it to some of the people who were designing the products he gotcha. was outlining. Right. Or, you this know, is, some this is my vision. Yeah. So I figured, wow, if any of these pages exist, I really want to see them. So anyone I talked to from the early Facebook who I thought might have those pages yeah. or might have known someone who had the pages that shared them with those people, I would ask. And they would all say, well, I don't know about that. And, you know, uh, they're long gone or whatever. And I would say, listen, let me write down my address. If these pages or some pages from... Happen to materialize. Exactly. Happen to wind up at this address, it need not even come with a return address. That would be all right. And one yeah. day I came down to my mailbox and opened up. There's a big brown envelope with 17 pages from the Book of Change, which was the notebook you wanted to read. And it was like a Rosetta Stone for Facebook, a, a window into Mark Zuckerberg's psyche. How many people did you do this here, just take my address? Uh, it was like a yeah, dozen, two yeah, dozen? Yeah, at least. There was a well into double right, figures. Right, right, right. Well, because that's what's so interesting about the story of Facebook is as much about the evolution. It's really about the evolution of Mark Zuckerberg as much about the company. It feels right. like they're kind of one and the same. And one of the things that comes out in the book is that he's always been this person obsessed with growth, yeah. with domination. And what's been really interesting is to watch the public perception and how that has changed. And the blame when things are going really wrong was like, it's Sheryl Sandberg's fault. Mm -hmm. She was the adult in the room brought in and like, he is just this coder who doesn't really like have a handle on what he's doing. But when you step back and look at especially all the stuff that you collected, when you go back to his days at Harvard and he's hacking into student journalist accounts to yeah. see what they're going to write about him. And he was always very, very deliberate. Yeah, definitely she did things to help grow up the culture. You know, I describe her as like a Wendy coming to the Lost Boys. But Mark Zuckerberg was always the one in charge. Mm -hmm. um, he was 
the decision maker. When Sheryl Sandberg came, they did, in a sense, split up the company. And Zuckerberg said, you, you do all the things that I'm not interested in. He wanted yeah. product and engineering, and Sandberg was in charge of stuff like uh, policy and sales, of which he did a great job of building a sales force and interfacing with customers for ads and doing business model. But Zuckerberg, he didn't need an adult. He, he was running things. Well, that's what that's what's been so interesting is like to it's taken a long time, and I still feel like a lot of people still don't see it that way. It's like you know, this is just a kid who, oh, and which he pedals. He, yeah, no, he, I'm he, just a kid who yeah, started he, he this in my dorm that. room. Yeah, yeah. Back in the dorm, we couldn't anticipate this, but you think about it. They were out of the dorm within four months, and they were in Silicon Valley. He was surrounded by some of the best minds in Silicon Valley. Mm. His short-term mentor was this guy Sean Parker. Yep. who was a brilliant guy who had been one of the forces behind Napster. Then he started a company called Plaxo, and he sort of got uh, screwed over by his funders and taught Zuckerberg how not to be screwed over. Yeah. Uh, they got connected with Reid Hoffman, who was really one of the great theorists of social networking, founder of LinkedIn. And, and Hoffman wanted to be the big investor in his company, but realized it might be a conflict. So we introduced him to Peter Thiel, who became the first big investor, and Hoffman uh, and another guy, Mark Pincus, who would be head of Zenga, put in $35,000 each, which became worth, you know, Yeah, I hadn't realized, unbelievable. I hadn't realized Pincus was an early investor until I read your book. Yeah, he had this great advice, and everything went great for him. Uh, he was able to make that pivot from a college network to something that served everyone in the world, which actually was a, a difficult task because the way things were structured yeah. in Facebook, even from a technological level, it, you know, it was like each campus was like a little island. So they had to change the whole infrastructure to do that while they're growing crazily, yeah. right? And what's, that's what's one of the interesting things for me is I was, I was at a, a reception for an unnamed venture capital firm of which they're, you know, every once in a while they throw these parties or whatever, invite a bunch of journalists and founders along and everything. And so I was kind what of... What do they serve? Oh, this is a very highfalutin Mexican. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So I was just sitting and I was talking to a couple of their portfolio companies and just kind of unprompted, they start like waxing rhapsodically about Zuckerberg. And this is post the election, post... You know, Russia, all of this stuff had come out. Like, Facebook had turned into, like, kind of a pinata for politicians and regulators around the world. And they're like, he's amazing. He is the best chief executive. What he has done is incredible. And I think through a certain lens, because I thought I walked away being like, this is crazy to me. But if you are about growth and creating a global product, he's was very deliberate and very successful. Deliberate, I'm not sure, but, you know, fast. He is, you know, he, he he's done an amazing job in that sense. And a lot of people are like your venture capitalists, and they'll talk about him in odd mm-hmm. cadences and, you know, uh, wow, amazing. <laughs> um, but I, I have also talked to people, high post Silicon Valley, who say, not for attribution, but I don't yeah. trust this guy. I never trusted this guy. Yeah. I don't like this guy. And it's, it's fascinating because his fans, 
they are, like you say, real fans. And they're the same, yeah. Yeah, uh, that he's like a learning machine. I've never seen anyone pick up more than, than him. And he is sort of a, you know, like a black swan in, in a lot of ways. He has done an amazing job to do something unprecedented, as that billion people indicated. Now it's almost three billion. Yeah. And in terms of the actual, the book, getting access, getting inside, interviewing all these people, are there one or two vignettes or things that you were like kind of you know when you're writing like yes i can't believe i got that that's yeah. great well there there were yeah there are some i mean i'm talking to some people about for instance the 2016 election mm. they shared with me how donald trump played the the facebook yes. platform like a stradivarius they were in awe of how well the trump people with the help of Facebook, Facebook embedded some people into that yeah. campaign, and they made the same offer to the Clinton campaign, which turned them down. And the juxtaposition of those two in the book is yeah. extraordinary. Where did Clinton campaign was just like, "No, nah, we're good." Yeah, yeah, we're good, or or we're, they'll they or they take take an ad which was tailored for say women, and they say we want men too, which means they had to pay way high prices and get no bounce back. Whereas the Trump campaign was doing sometimes as much many as one hundred seventy five thousand variations on an ad in a day, and you know yeah. specifically targeting it to people who that particular issue might resonate with, and they figured if someone wasn't a Trump supporter, they would try to target that person with issues to make them disgusted with the whole system and not vote. Yeah. And um, so the people at, at Facebook were telling me, wow, how we were in all of this, but we didn't really care because we figured there's no way he's going to win. You know, I learned about secret projects like the Facebook phone that was going to take on <laughs> Android and Apple. Right. It was codenamed Ghostface Killer. Yeah. yeah. Then I had amazingly jaw-dropping conversations with some people who were former employees, hmm. um, you know, they gave me the lowdown on a lot of stuff too. Do you have a view on the, because there's a whole group of people, including Sean Parker, including Chamath Paliapatia, who obviously did astoundingly well and have now taken their hundreds of millions or billions yeah. and run and been like, oh man, I feel really bad about this. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a whole club of, there is a you know, club, Chris Hughes as well. Yeah, thing. yeah, of people who were made incredibly rich by Mark Zuckerberg, who now either part-time or full-time, <laughs> you know, they against Facebook, not ever giving the money back. Exactly. But I don't know, if, if you're filthy rich by it, you might think, shut up. But it's it's a fascinating phenomenon, you know, that, that uh, Chamath... He sort of unloaded once, and mm. he's actually close with Sheryl Sandberg, and they had a conversation, and he sort of walked back some of that stuff. Right. But in my interview with him, he told me amazing stuff about – that was one of those interviews about the, the, the growth and how he did – ran the growth team and did crazy things, some things that just pushed the borders of what was proper to do. Yeah. And – getting growth for Facebook. Um, one of the things he did was a thing called Dark Profiles that Zuckerberg at first wrote about in his book, Yeah, in the notebook. The Book of Change. Yeah. And Facebook always says, well, we don't use these dark profiles. We yeah. never, you know, there, there might be something that we have technically there for security or something like that, but we wouldn't use it for ads or for boost membership. But Chamath told me that they had dark profiles on people and they would do things like take out ads in people's names. And when people, those people search for themselves, as everyone does on Google, right? Yep. The ad would come up. 
the, the, the ad for what? The dark profile on Facebook. And they would say, wow, I'm on Facebook? I, let me take a look at this. And they, would, they might be moved to actually fill out the profile and actually sign up. And then, as it turns out, and this is another fascinating uh, fact, that part of growth is retention. Because yeah. when someone signs up for Facebook, they're in a very vulnerable period because they didn't, they didn't friend anybody yet. No one's friended them. So what's going to come up on their newsfeed? So Facebook did a few things about that so that people wouldn't abandon Facebook right away. Mm. One is that uh, Chamath told me they would do this thing called fluff stories. They just like make up stuff. And the other um, was they would use this uh, product they created, which I said was like the Mona Lisa or like a Rolling Stone mm. of the growth team, uh, their masterpiece called People You May Know. Oh, yes, 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 yeah, yes. Yeah, and which is the thing that – you know, your listeners see we're kind of like a police lineup of, you know, uh, people who you aren't friends with, who Facebook thinks you might want to be friends with. And these go from people who are familiar to you to people who you say, you know, how the hell did they know I know this person to people who I don't know this person. But once you look into it, you find that, you know, uh, Facebook knew you knew them even when you didn't know it. Exactly. You know, like so, the best example of that is some people who were mystified by who was suggested, and then they later came to learn that they were fellow patients of the same psychiatrist. And that's the thing, the, the other kind of principle that runs throughout Facebook and indeed Silicon Valley is like, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Right. But it does feel like that was like an abiding principle where it was like, I remember someone telling me about like, I think... There was at some point, and I might maybe getting the details of the story wrong, but groups were public, and there was somebody who'd moved out here and joined a gay men's chorus, mm-hmm. and he hadn't come out to his family yet, but then yeah. they found out that he was part of this, and so effectively he was outed by Facebook. Yeah, the, Facebook has had uh, situations like that a few times. You know, at one point, I think it was 2009, they just changed the default status of yeah. who would see your posts from friends only to everybody. And that was one of the things that got them cited by the Federal Trade Commission right. for violating privacy in a 2011 consent decree. And so here we are in 2020. They have nearly 3 billion people across WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook. I came away from your book not very confident that the way Facebook operates is going to change. And that kind of – now they're moving fast with – sound infrastructure or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Stable infrastructure. Stable infrastructure. But it does feel like just the default setting of the company and the default settings of Mark Zuckerberg are to just continue to grow when there's not a a kind of a moral reckoning uh, about, well, should we be doing this or doing this in in this way and growing this fast and being 3 billion people big? Is that too big to govern? Is this thing out of control? What is your sense after spending three years on this and talking to people inside and outside the company? Yeah, so I, I think you, you're on to something. I, they're spending huge amount of effort to fix things that led to these problems. Like content moderation, for example. The, content moderation, yeah. trying to fight fake news, minimize it. Yeah. Particularly in things that are getting a lot of traction to lessen hate speech to they're pretty successful really getting rid of terrorist content. Yeah. That's something that AI is pretty good at. But essentially, they still are moving fast. Because 
in 2012, there was a near-death experience at Facebook because they were slow to, to dominate to on mobile. mobile. Right, right. Yeah. And for a while, they weren't making money on mo- mobile. They had to figure out how to do that. And this was around the time they did their IPO, which was unsuccessful. Yeah. And I think Zuckerberg vowed never to let that happen again. So he feels he has to keep moving and take what's next. Right. And I had a really interesting conversation with him once, not long after Cambridge Analytica, the biggest scandal yeah, yeah. in their history. And they were about to go into a developer's conference. It's their big annual event. F8. Yeah, exactly. Fate, you know? Yeah. And Which was just canceled because of coronavirus. Yeah, they canceled it this yeah. year because uh, coronavirus. And I wonder... Gee, maybe they didn't have anything great to announce. But, <laughs> but, Very cynical of you. But I said, well, how, what are you going to do in your keynote? And he said, well, the first 15 minutes, I'm going to talk about winning back trust. And in the second 15 minutes, I'm going to announce all the new things we're doing because we have to keep moving forward. And one of those things was Facebook dating. Yes. And I said, dating? I said, Mark, um, do you think it's a good idea, you know, a good time to do dating? Considering all the criticism you're under about hailing privacy and, and 87 million profiles of Facebook found its way into the hands of, you know, these right wing maniacs. Of, you know. And he said, well, we've always people always used it for dating. We've never been explicit. Yeah. You know, we got to talk about other things. Then he sort of circled back and he said, do you think it's going to be a problem that people are going to be critical of the dating thing? That's said, a, that was a genuine question. Yes. And that's exactly that's. Perfect summation of what I feel after reading the book. Yeah. And, and he thought about it, right? And he announced it anyway. <laughs> I, 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 he's not going to listen to me. No. And so and to, do you have a sense? I mean, because obviously the regulators are coming over the horizon now. Yeah, they're, um, they're, they're on the top of the hill. Everybody's Excelsior, you know? Exactly. And everybody <laughs> compares it to Facebook. Uh, sorry, to Microsoft. And Microsoft, you know, they were told to break up and then fought the government for 20 years and you know, they're basically not a consumer brand effectively anymore, but they're worth a trillion dollars and yeah. they stuck together. Do you have a, s- a sense of the direction of travel or, or what the company is thinking internally about how they plan to navigate this other than just lawyering up and just being like, no, we're fine? Well, one thing they did was, and, you know, I write about this, there's more attention played now on what's called this privacy focused vision. Where yeah, they're the going to spend is private, right. more energy now in the messaging services like WhatsApp and Instagram as as messaging service and you know Facebook Messenger. The story of that is really underappreciated. How they ripped it out of the the main Facebook app and made it a separate app. Right? Yeah, made you install it, which is like Silicon Valley one hundred and one yeah. on how to piss off users. Yes, but they did it and they got past it, and now it's a billion plus user behemoth on its own right so he's going to use those and, and encrypt those and, and under the hood it's all facebook so the data will be shared so the people who are on instagram would think haha i've deleted facebook well they're still part of all that yeah microsoft did sort of a similar move when it was under scrutiny it made that browser part of the operating system and said yeah. we can't possibly pull us apart it's, it's part of that and that, that didn't really work with the judge uh who ordered they be split up but they just waited till the next administration and that let them off the hook. So I think it's either going to take a very long time. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. 
That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Or just probably not happen at all that Instagram and WhatsApp will be pulled out of Facebook. But what will happen, and is happening now, is that Facebook cannot buy TikTok. Correct, right, so, which they would love to do. And Microsoft was constrained for a number of years, and that's when other things sprang up and challenged uh, its power, and, and that's why it's not a consumer company. TikTok is whatever, I don't know how many downloads it's now, but it's like the next, it's like the kind of right in the crosshairs, you would think, Yeah. for Zuckerberg. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's going to be some sort of feature of Facebook where it encourages people to like, you know, (laughs) shake their booty for 12 seconds, right? (laughs) And it probably will fail, but, you know, it'll come up with something else. Yeah. So when they announced the encryption, what I don't quite understand about this, and I don't know if you have insight into this or not, but it seems to me that the whole secret sauce of Facebook is they know me and they know you or they know their users. But if things are end-to-end encrypted as they are on WhatsApp, aren't they basically bringing down the shutters on what they know about their users and therefore does that not undermine the whole business? Not really. No, 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 no. The... Yeah, I mean, they don't. They don't. They've never really mined the content mm. of what you say, right? They mind. You know, they look at what you look at. They look at who you're communicating with, and you know all this stuff is linked, right? So, if you're communicating through WhatsApp, they still know who you are through Facebook and your likes. And your likes could be anywhere in the web, right? Mm. So they still know plenty about you, and they're not going to have difficulty figuring out which ad to send to you. So when they say end-to-end encrypted, what is it they... What's what's going to be protected is message content. Right. And Facebook won't read it, can't read it. They can now. But they won't be able to read it. It's like they can't read the content of what's on WhatsApp now. You know, the founders of WhatsApp told Mark Zuckerberg, we're encrypting because they were strong believers in that stuff. Facebook will still be able to do its business with encryption. And some people are really worried that uh, law enforcement might have a difficulty for child trafficking, things like that, knowing what's going on. And some people at Facebook were really upset about yeah. it. That, you know, probably the second most important executive of Facebook, a guy named Chris Cox, left, in, I think, in part because he was unhappy with that very thing. But it's a strange thing because, you know, I'm, I'm actually a big advocate of encryption. I wrote a book called Crypto, you know, about how great that was. But uh, 
law enforcement has a way around that too. That that, that that's sort of a red flag. But the, the, the key is that this is something that Facebook can do and build up. And that's where the growth is in these companies. They haven't even begun to monetize WhatsApp and no. Instagram, you know, they are making a lot of money on. But that's still on the rise. Um, Messenger, they haven't begun to really seriously monetize it. So Messenger and WhatsApp, that's their revenue growth. So by building those up, they're going to get their growth in the future and keep that stock by, price. Via ads. Yeah, Right. By ads or commerce, which is what they see as a way to make money from those platforms. Well, I was at like Facebook Marketplace. I was reading some on some metric, it is bigger than maybe by users than eBay already. Yeah, that could be, and, and it's really like not a great product. Yeah, so exactly. if they, they improve it, just imagine what that could be. Right, right. Do you see the future that, uh, then as this becomes kind of like a utility that? And will be somehow regulated as such, but that this is that this is part of the social fabric now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not dropping off; it's still yeah. rising. They've sort of plateaued in North America, but in other places of the world, it's still going up. Particularly in you know Instagram, that's just rising. Yeah, I write about how in recent years there was a feeling among the Instagram team that Zuckerberg was jealous of Instagram's success. And I've read a lot about that at the time. Is that that was a, that was a real kind of sense within the company? Certainly within Instagram, and right. you know, they, and Zuckerberg was sort of denying their requests for right. more engineers, and he was sort of pulling away advantages that they had in terms of linking to the Blue app, the main app. They wanted to introduce their own messaging, separate messaging thing, Instagram Direct, and Zuckerberg put a stop to that. And essentially, he made it so uncomfortable that the CEO of Instagram and his co-founder, Mike Krieger, quit. It was clear that Zuckerberg was not unhappy with this, even though Systrom was like a brilliant executive and built you know, Instagram to an amazing power, you know, uh, worth so much more than the lousy billion dollars that Zuckerberg <laughs> paid, which seemed a lot like a, like a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, because now it's worth, I think, some analysts estimate it's like $100 billion. Right. But it does feel like his circle has shrunk quite markedly. Yeah, it has shrunk. But you know, there are a number of people who are there from early, early on. The, the guy who's in charge of coronavirus is a, a, a fellow who was his college classmate at Harvard. Right. You know, the night they, he launched the Facebook, he and this other guy, you know, like went out to a pizza place and you know, looked the results. Do you see any? I don't know what the best word is, fatigue or ill effect from him kind of losing a lot of the people that... Well, some of them, you know, like, like fellow Chris Cox, we mentioned, he left. That was a huge blow. Yeah. You know, there are a number of people. There was this photograph that was taken at Facebook's birthday a couple of years ago. Zuckerberg was surrounded by, or maybe it was Zuckerberg's birthday. It was a the time they gave him like a, like a meat cake, a Ugh. cake with design with... Things that looked like pieces of meat. Right, right, you know, right. When right. my fact-checking, they said, no, no, it wasn't meat. It was like things that looked like meat. Um, <laughs> you know, and it was like maybe like 25 or 30 of the people who were his inner circle. Some of them are gone, but the others are the ones that he taps when a big opening comes up. Like, we need someone to replace Kevin Systrom in Instagram. Or we need someone to replace the WhatsApp founders. And that guy left. And then they picked another one person yeah. from that picture. As fewer people get the picture, they, it's a dilemma because Zuckerberg really trusts people who've been around a long time. Do you think Sandberg is sticking around? It's hard to say. I don't know what's in her head. But she told me that originally she was going to be there for five years. 
and it's been more than 10. Yeah. There's no great time to leave when the company isn't doing well. But it is doing well. Well, no. I mean, it's doing well financially. Yeah. You know, it's stock price is blue chip, but it's reputation stock is penny stock. Right. <laughs> and you know, so, and, yeah, and even though Sandberg can take a lot of credit for the financial success, she also has a lot of responsibility less than Zuckerberg's, but responsibility for the other stuff. And one of the other things that, which struck me, Zuckerberg seems to be clinging to this idea of like, of free speech, like, Mm-hmm. Got to be, we're huge supporters of free speech, and that drives a lot of the decisions around basically hands off. Like people will figure out what's fake and what isn't. Like you know, and then they realize belatedly that that's not the case, etc. But all of it feels like, for example, him talking be like so passionately about free speech. It feels like it is in service of actually just growth. And right. That, well, I mean, it's part just two things again. I think it's something that, you know, fits his values. And that's what I'm trying to get at. Expressing yourself. Expressing yourself. That's the way he puts it. He doesn't say free speech. He doesn't say, uh, you know, I'm the reincarnation of Judge Brandeis. But (laughs) he says, I really want this to be a platform where people can express themselves. Mm -hmm. But he also wants it to be a platform where people are safe. So he built this platform to where the kind of content which could be considered toxic or unsafe can move very fast and can be very popular. The dilemma he's in now about, say, censorship versus safety is one that he created for himself. Yes. So it's not like you could just now say, oh, free speech, good. Um, How do we reconcile that? It's like it's possible to envision to Facebook where that wouldn't be as big a problem. Also, as you mentioned, if you adopt free speech and and are less involved in determining what content is toxic or dangerous, then you don't have to have so many people, you know, making those decisions at scale where they, you know, can't really do it well because the nuances in doing this right can't be done giving, you know, uh, some contract employee in Phoenix or the Philippines, you know, uh, 400 decisions a day on these contents, the content issues. Yeah. What was the hardest thing about writing the book? Look, when I, the way I write books is it's a story. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a nonfiction novel. Yep. And the structure of the novel, actually, in this case, sort of became easy because I felt there's only one way to write this story. It's a story of something that started out a certain way and then and ended a certain way and how you get there and you know what the physical human drama is yeah. in this as well as the story of technology and society. So that was easy. It was hard sort of shaping how that fell in. I wound up writing more about the early part of Facebook than I thought mm. I would. Who was the playwright was it Strindberg who said that if you put a gun in Act One, it's got to go off in Act Three. So I had the opposite. I, I was looking at Act Three where the guns were going off, yeah. and I said, "Yeah, you know, where do those guns get planted?" So you have to go back in Facebook's history and Zuckerberg's history to understand that. And it took me a while to sort of settle into that. I actually thought I would start writing sooner, but as it turned out, I didn't start the write, serious writing part 
until January of 2019. Right. And then for the next eight months, I was writing, but also doing some keeping up with the story, right, doing right. interviews. And, and I had my last great interviews with Zuckerberg that year. Was there ever a moment where you thought, because you obviously you start, as you say, it's kind of peak Facebook. Right. It's the great, it, this is the greatest kind of story ever. And this kid, 30-something or 20-something at that point, he's a billionaire. Oh, my God, yeah. this is amazing. Yeah, he started in his teens. Yeah. Did you ever get the sense that they was like, you know what, I'm done here because this story is obviously going in a different direction <laughs> because that's just the way the Well, it's great. Now, I, my rule of writing yeah. is there's, a, there's like Levy's rule, and this is it, that the story you find when you research something is always more interesting than your preconception of it. Yes. So if stuff happens that changes what you do, that's to be expected, and that's great because it's more interesting than saying, oh, I'm going to tell the story. You know, I read, wrote a book about Google before, and it's going to be like the Google book mm-hmm. or X, yeah, Y, yeah. and Z. And no, 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 real life. This is why I do it. Like I'm writing about real life, and real life is fascinating. And if you have the opportunity going for hundreds of pages to about a story and capture the nuance of the story, you know, we've been inundated with headlines about Facebook over the past couple of years. Yep. Every day you turn the paper, you know, and literally I knew, and maybe this is at first it seems like a, a, a rough part, I knew it every day in the morning probably 75 to 100 reporters, top reporters around the world, would wake up in the morning yes. and figure out, what shit can I dig up about Facebook today? And there's always something, right? Absolutely, so, yes. Yeah, so I, you know, your instinct is to say, oh, my God, they're getting all the good stuff. But no, 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 these people are your friends. They're helping dig up parts of the story that yeah. you'll choose from or follow up on. It turned out to be a much more interesting story than I thought, and you know, because it was all there, that, that pivot that was unfolding before my eyes from beloved to reviled. Did you ever get a sense that Zuckerberg was kind of going to bow out of his agreement to basically... Well, it was nothing in writing. They could have easily right. you know, said, you know what, we're not cooperating anymore. Yeah. I couldn't say, no, you, you agreed to that. You made yeah, a verbal yeah, yeah. agreement. No, 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 no. You know, the, it was basically saying, okay, we'll let you in. I gave up no, nothing in order to do that. So it you know, wasn't saying, you know, it's a contract yeah, yeah. like that. It was just, a, you know, where we were going to go, how we were going to do this. And I think they hit their troubles. They probably assessed it. I think people told me this happened. That They said, well, is this still worth cooperating with him? And yeah. then they figured by then he's going to write it anyway. And historically, he's been fair. Give give him a chance, and let's let's tell our side of the story to him, and you know, in hopes that he'll listen to it. Again, trying to throw it forward. Do you feel that the company and/or Zuckerberg has changed from that kid, from all those stories you dug up when he's like obsessed with Roman emperors and yeah. wants to dominate the world, and kind of doesn't have much compunction about trampling people's privacy or really violating people's privacy the way he did in those early days and just being like, oh, sorry about that. Anyway, just kind of, you know, (laughs) when he almost got kicked out of Harvard and uh, when he made, what is it, face mash or whatever it was, uh, raiding people's looks and they hadn't given consent. And then his big takeaway was, People are pretty voyeuristic. Yeah, yeah. He said that in court yeah. or in a deposition. And it's kind of like, whoa, okay, you're just, you're not like most other people. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's pretty fair to say. You know, he's an unusual person. But morally, do you think that's a problem? In some ways, he is very consistent. He's super consistent. That's, I guess, my point is that he is super consistent. That feels like that's kind of the problem. Yeah, yeah. And he still, even more than he was before, he he told, I read about an internal meeting where he said to people that, you know, there's two kinds of CEOs, wartime CEOs and peacetime CEOs. And this is sort of the terminology of Ben Horowitz, a well-known venture capital capitalist and um he said I'm, I'm now a wartime ceo i don't think he was ever a peacetime ceo really but i was gonna say it doesn't feel like he was ever a yeah yeah CEO. but this time he a wartime ceo one of the attributes is you don't have to take in much you just make the ruling right away yeah um i talked to his parents to get to know him better after years they finally agreed to talk they to agreed him. yeah yeah I, I didn't hold them at gunpoint. <laughs> <laughs> Show up at their door. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I showed up at their door, but they were expecting me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his mother told me a really interesting story. When he was in high school, he, he attended this public high school hmm. in a suburb of New York City. And the high school didn't have enough computer courses or advanced placement courses for him. And he wanted to go to a private school. Not too far down the road, where there was a really excellent private school called Horace Mann. He had heard about a prep school called Phillips Exeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in New Hampshire. He had to board there. And his mother said, "Listen, you know your older sister is going away to college this year, and I don't want to lose two kids." She particularly didn't want to lose him before she had to. He was a beloved single son in yeah. four kids among four kids. His mother called him Princely. And she said, I want you to take a serious look at Horace Mann. I really want you to go there uh, so you could live at home. Why don't you just do the interview and see if you like it? Yeah. And he said, I'll do the interview, but I'm going to Exeter. And he went to Exeter, of course. At what age? 15. Right. I thought of that when I was writing about the times where he wanted to go ahead on some product where his lieutenants were saying to him, not a good idea. Or let's make this opt in because it's yeah yeah a violate it could be a violation of privacy, or this product goes over the line, Um, and he would say no 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 we're going to do it you know we could fix it later if people object, and I just thought Exeter yeah for me that was the most salient thing out of the book was just like he has always been this the person that he is. Yeah, yeah. And he's grown up. You know, he doesn't stare at you like that anymore. <laughs> Though if you ask him a certain kind of question, you'll get you'll get that look. And one executive called it Sauron's gaze. Uh, you know, and in a lot of ways, he has matured. He's got a family. Yeah, He's married to the woman who was his girlfriend during the period he did Facebook, which is a surprise to some people who thought that one might think the social network, that movie, portrayed everything accurately. He's, you know, like a more convivial interviewer. I'm, I enjoy talking to him. I like him personally. Oh, really? Yeah. Any other nuggets from the book, that, from this odyssey, that kind of stick out for you as like, as you say, you kind of go into something with, you obviously have some preconceptions. Yeah. Right. you're like, whoa. Well, I loved writing about the phone project they developed. The, the, you know, it was only gonna, a right-handed phone, right? Yeah, yeah. They're going to take on Apple and Android. And it was called Ghostface Killer. And it's, a, it's another Chamath production yeah. that they, they didn't make. I love the stuff about the growth team, really eye-opening stuff. 
And um, I actually had a lot of fun writing about Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was almost a story within a story. Well, I was going to ask you about that. So you ha- obviously have some great perspective here because half the people are like, that's a bunch of bullshit anyway. Yeah. Like Cambridge Analytica were kind of selling a dream right. that wasn't that effective. What is your take having kind of dived deep into the, the machine? Right. So my view is Cambridge Analytica happened in 2010. How so? That was when Facebook, you know, they had this platform yep. that were software developers, outside software app creators, could write applications on top of Facebook. Like Farmville, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they could be games. They could be things like Spotify, people listen to music. They could be stupid things. The most popular ones early were things where you could do things like throw sheep at each other, right? And other idiotic things proved hugely popular and sort of ruined the news feed for a little while. Or you could do surveys. And in 2010, they stepped that up because they wanted to do a product called Instant Personalization mm. where you might go to a website and you could bring your whole social network with you. And again, people said, Mark, I don't think this is a good idea. He went and did it. And the thing about this thing was if you signed up for one of these apps or took the survey, mm. you're, the software developer would get access to your profile on Facebook, all the stuff you shared. It was an implicit opening of the kimono to everything. Yeah. All your personal data. But, but yeah, all your personal data. But also all the data of your friends. Right. So each Facebook user has an average of 130 friends. So and these are people who have no idea that you have signed up for this app and the developer is getting your information. And, and that, 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 that decision to basically make your data accessible. So I sign up like, what's my personality? Whatever, that yeah. personality. Well, your likes are part of that too, right? Right. So and, that decision to make by basically playing a game, making your data available and that of all of your friends, that was an, aff- that was an affirmative decision. Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. To Because they wanted to create this instant yeah. personalization. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they wanted the developers to give them the information back because the platform turned out to be a failure mm. because people didn't want to write apps for Facebook. They wanted to write apps for mobile phones. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. came up since, you know, literally the same month that maybe the month before the iPhone was introduced. Yeah. They came up with their platform. So the only use of the platform became an information exchange. So when they were unhappy about the reciprocity of the developers, they closed that that loophole or, or, or gate. It wasn't just a loophole. Yeah. It was, you know, like an attribute. They closed that in 2014 and uh, gave a year grace period to people who were using it. So that was the way that the Cambridge University researcher got... Alexander uh, Koch. Yeah, yeah. He did a survey, paid 200,000 people like pennies to take the survey yeah. and got all their connections, their profiles, all their connections on there. And that was like 87 million people. And that was perfectly fine with Facebook. That was according to the rules. That was no problem with that. Yeah. The problem was when he violated Facebook's rules and sold them to Cambridge Analytica. You know, this company, this UK military contractor in partners with the funder of the worst right-wing stuff in America. Yeah. But do you have a sense of how effective that stuff was? People say it really wasn't that data itself 
wasn't that effective. And, you know, the head of the Trump campaigns he, who used Cambridge Analytica. Brad Parscale. So, yeah. Says I, I, it wasn't that we didn't use that data too much. And, um, but on the other hand, it was that company. Facebook kept selling ads to the company, even when the Cambridge Analytica wouldn't verify that they had deleted the data yeah, that Facebook had asked them to do. It feels like that that data can be very useful in targeting people because the way the Facebook system operates, that could be very helpful. So whether or not it was effective, potentially it could have been. And Cambridge Analytica wasn't the only company that wound up with a lot of that data. There were like something like 40,000 app developers that took advantage of that. Do you think Facebook now, given its size, is effectively too big to control? Given well, that, given the what do you mean? Well, who? What do you mean? Control? You mean too big for Facebook to control? Yes. Do what you want with machine learning algorithms. They're getting yeah. better. They're getting better. They're getting better, etc. Yeah. But when you have that many people, you don't want to control all speech, right? Do you no. mean too big to police? To govern? To yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, basically, even Facebook says we're never going to make this perfect. We're always going to you know, have a struggle hmm. to keep toxic content off the platform to minimize fake news. In that sense, yeah, it is. But, you know, I mean, the question is, how much do you want to trade off? Yeah. Facebook traditionally has wanted to trade off more than people are comfortable with, at least what they've learned in the past few years. And do you think that balance has shifted at all? You know, if you go back again to, uh, you know, where, you, where the guns were planted. Yeah. This, uh, this obsession from day one with growth. Yeah. Privacy be damned. Right. Well, at first they they, they blew blew past those issues. And now they say now for the first time, you know, we're going to actually now take more of a look at what the impact of a product could be, the negative impact of a product could be when we release it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's not kind of the kind of thing you should do (laughs) like first. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Danny. Yeah. And that is all the time we have this week. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, We'll be back with some piping hot, fresh stuff next week. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, for your reviews, your ratings. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Telling friends, etc. I hope you guys are having a fabulous summer week. And uh, we'll be back, like I said, next week with more good stuff for you. In the meantime, stay safe and stay sane. This pandemic doesn't seem to want to go away. Um, But anyhow, hope you all stay safe out there. See you next week. Bye-bye. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. 
Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley.